In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of all hearts. Saint Louis Marie de Montfort. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. As we continue with our Lenten series, we pause today to consider what many would consider to be the great or even preeminent popular devotion of Lent, which is the stations or the way of the cross. And it is a devotion that we're familiar with in terms of seeing the images of the stations adorning our churches. Many of us throughout our lives as Catholics have participated in the praying of the Stations of the Cross. And yet as often as we pray the Stations, as often as we gather in buildings much like this one, which surrounds us with the images of the Stations, we often spend very little time actually reflecting upon what they are in the first place where they have come from, why they are important, what is the peculiar power of this prayer. And so it seemed good that during this season where we are conscious of praying the stations, to take some time and offer some formation on the stations themselves. And so we begin with just a couple global issues that are involved. And the first is this. As St. Louis de Montfort so beautifully says, and he is simply echoing sentiments that were articulated hundreds of years earlier in the Catholic tradition. In my mind, he says, the single greatest, the single greatest means of quickening our hearts with love for the Lord is to contemplate lovingly all that he suffered for us. And so note this insistence that the more attention we pay to the suffering, the more intention we pay to the passion, the point is not first and foremost to have our hearts stirred to guilt, regret, and sorrow, although that should be there, but rather the great overarching objective is to kindle our hearts with a deeper love for the one who has done this for me. So note the thrust of that. The contemplation of the passion at its most profound begins with the, in the realization that this has been done for me. And so we contemplate not so much a tremendous act of suffering, but a tremendous act of love. This is why in no small measure the Lord says that when I am lifted up, I will draw all things, all people, all nations to myself. If what is lifted up is merely an evidence of suffering and pain, who does that draw? But when the for me and for you and for us is added, know what we are seeing. This is the great sign of how ardently Christ desires you. How ardently Christ loves me. 
how much he is willing to give for you and your sake. In other words, I see the greatness of his love. And in seeing the greatness of that love, the appropriate response is that my heart is struck. It is struck by my habitual indifference to that love. It is struck by the realization of how frequently and how readily I take that for granted. My heart is struck by how easily I forget it. But all of which stems from the fact that now I see, now I appreciate, and what do I desire? To receive and to return that love. And so the contemplation of the passion, as much as will involve the convicting us of our sinfulness, goes beyond that to seeking to kindle the fires of a deep and ardent love for the God, for Christ, who suffers so much for us. And why? So that we might more fully belong to him, that we might more fully know him. And so going beyond that, Father de Montfort continues, in my estimation, it is the cross that is the greatest secret of the king. The cross is the key that unlocks the full knowledge of him. And this is important, too, because time and time again, in sacred scripture, when the Lord describes himself, for example, as we heard just yesterday, what does the world say about me? Who do you say that I am? But that follows up later on, a short time later, with Jesus then not not stopping with what we say, not stopping with what the world says, but then the Lord describes himself. And what does Jesus say about himself? The Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man will be rejected. The Son of Man will be persecuted. The Son of Man will die on a cross and will rise. But note, he is not simply saying, these are the things that will happen to me. What he's saying essentially is, this is who I am. I am the one who has come for this. I am the one who has come to do this. This is who I am. Why have I come among you? To bear the cross that saves you. To give my life on the cross for you. That is why I am here. That is who I am. That is who, in fact, the Messiah is. This is why in chapter 12 of St. John's Gospel, when there is the group of Greeks in Jerusalem around the time of the Passover, and they want to meet Jesus, and they finally go through that original incarnation of ecclesial bureaucracy. They go and seek out Philip, who's the guy with the Greek name, and they say, we want to meet Jesus. And what does Philip do? He said, good, let's go to Andrew. And you see, we, we, the disciples are already making things complicated. <laughs> they go to Andrew, and, then, and with Andrew, then they get to Jesus. But in coming to Jesus, the remarkable thing is, the disciples come, the apostles come, they bring these Greeks who want to meet Jesus. And one would expect then that what is Jesus going to do? He's going to greet them, he's going to welcome them, He's going to say, I am Jesus whom you have been seeking. 
But rather than do anything like that, Jesus simply says, unless the grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remain merely a grain. How's that for hello? You know, Jesus, we want to meet you. He stretches out his hand, unless the grain of wheat fall to the ground and die. No hello, no nice to meet you, no tell me about yourself. Rather, note the answer. If you want to know who I am, if you want to meet me, this is who you meet. This is who I am. I am the grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies, that it might bear a rich harvest. That is who I am. So when we recognize this, we suddenly see that there is a tendency in the heart of man that wants to know everything about Jesus except his cross. We like the miracles. We like the teaching. We like the patience. We like the gentleness. We even understand at times when the Lord's words are stern and off-putting. But this idea of the humiliation, the sorrow, the suffering, the coming to nothing that involves the cross, that's much more difficult. And this is why then the Lord keeps insisting and the church echoes that insistence time and time again to know everything about Jesus and not know his cross is not to know him at all. But to know him and to meet him with his cross is then to have access to everything important about him. It is the key that unlocks the treasury of the secrets of the king. It is his great secret. And so recognizing this, then we come to the devotion at hand, the stations or the way of the cross and their particular power during the season of Lent. The great feast day for the church is the Feast of Easter. Easter is the original holy day, and that is why Sunday becomes the second holy day, because Easter happened on a Sunday. And every Sunday throughout the year, regardless of the season, is celebrated and understood by the church as a mini-celebration of Easter. It is the echo of Easter on a weekly basis, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. But the gateway to Easter Sunday is Good Friday. Because the one who rises from the dead is the one who gives his life on the cross. This is why in the early church on Pentecost Sunday, that day where 3,000 new believers were brought into the church. Imagine having to do all those baptismal certificates. And St. Peter on that day, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives in a sense the first Christian proclamation of salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's a remarkably direct powerful, even blunt, statement of the very essence of Christian faith. This Jesus, whom you crucified. Note the bluntness of that. 
The crowd is there. Tell me why you are this way. And he says, you need to understand this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised up and made both Messiah and Lord. The one who has been crucified is the one who is victorious. If I want to know the victory, I have to know the victor. And I only know the victor by seeing the struggle. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised up and made both Messiah and Lord. This becomes so important for the church as it moves forward that it never forgets how Jesus himself defined what it is to be a disciple. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself, let him pick up his cross, and follow me. And so if the season of Lent, which prepares us to enter into the great celebration of the victory of Easter, involves a certain element of self-denial, note what the next step is. It's the point of the giving something up. It's the point of the fasting. If anyone would come after me. So there's a desire a desire to move with Jesus, a desire to follow along where Jesus would lead. If any would come after me, step one, let him deny himself. Note the importance of self-denial here. But note how all too often with a season like Lent, we, we, we truncate ourselves, we stop our movement short. What do you do during Lent? I give something up. Well, that's not bad. That's actually necessary. But notice how we don't say anything beyond that. Like, why am I giving something up? And oftentimes the answer is, well, I'm not really sure, but you're supposed to. You know, I, I'm, I'm giving up coffee. I'm giving up sweets. I'm giving up television. I'm giving up, and that's wonderful. But what's the point? The point is not weight loss. The point is not getting back into shape. The point is not simply cleaning up my act. Those are all good things, and if they're the side effects of what we do, that is wonderful. But if they're the point of what we're doing, we've drifted off course. Let him deny himself. Why the self-denial? So that I can pick up the cross. So now note this image of putting one's hand to the cross. You know, we, we often reduce that statement, carry your cross, to merely a metaphor. And we make it abstract. And obviously the Lord isn't, all, isn't saying, grab the physical cross and come. And yet, there's a value in pausing with the physicality of that statement. Put your hand to it. Lift it up. Feel its weight. Pick it up. Don't just look at it. Don't just think about it. Pick it up. Note how different that sounds all of a sudden. And why? Because all too often our sluggish hearts are content 
to simply have the information. You know, we say, Jesus says we have to pick up our crosses. We all nod to each other very solemnly. Yes, we must pick up our crosses. And what do we do? None of us moves. If you would follow me, deny yourself so that you can rightly pick up your cross. Because the spirit of self-denial is necessary for truly picking up the cross rightly. And when the cross is in your hand, what do you do? You follow me. So note the image here of following the Lord on his way to Calvary. Following the Lord into the mystery of his self-giving. Following the Lord on the way to the victory of Easter, which goes through his gift of himself on Good Friday. And note the necessary sequence. Self-denial is an essential element of that. Because otherwise what happens is I will carry the cross resentfully, impatiently, willfully, and I might say to the Lord, can't we take another direction? Or why can't I have her cross instead of this one? Self-denial allows someone else to lead. It allows the spirit of Jesus to guide my own. And so all of a sudden we see then that during Lent, with this emphasis on self-denial, there's a natural dovetailing with the movement to embrace the cross. A natural dovetailing to move with the cross along with Christ. And an insistence that carrying the cross with Jesus doesn't take us to Good Friday and stop there. It takes us through Good Friday to the victory of Easter. And as we do that, we see then keeping our eye on Christ, lifting him up in our hearts. When I am lifted up, I will draw all things to myself. And that starts with us, with those parts of our lives that are out of joint that he begins to draw toward himself to put our lives in good order. The early church came to a devotion to the passion of Christ by stages. Initially, one didn't see crucifixes like the one I just held up in our churches the image of the Lord suffering and dying on the cross. That comes much later in the tradition. And why? Because during the time of Rome, it was still an instrument of capital punishment. And so wearing a crucifix around your neck with the one who is dying and suffering would be like wearing an electric chair, would be like walking around with a hangman's noose. It would have been difficult for everyone to understand. But there was another reason for it. Crucifixion for Rome, for the Romans, was an act of public witness. This is why those who were crucified were brought outside of the city, were lifted up high, so that everyone walking by, leaving the city, entering the city, would look and would see What happens when you disobey? What happens when you rebel against Rome? Look and see 
what is waiting for you. And so initially, Rome used crucifixion to proclaim something. It proclaimed its power. It proclaimed its authority. It proclaimed the threat and the destruction that it would visit upon anyone who dared to oppose it. And what did the original Christians do? They took seriously this little inscription that we see on our crucifixes, the I-N-R-I, that abbreviation with Latin letters of what Pontius Pilate wrote and had placed on top of the crucifix. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And when Caesar, threatening the world with the pain of crucifixion, sat on his throne and claimed to be the ruler of all the earth, the early Christians remembered another one, crowned with thorns, lifted up on that cross, suffering everything that Rome could do to him, and yet rising from the dead and revealing himself as the true king of all the earth. So the first crucifixes that we have in the Christian tradition show Jesus dressed like the emperor, show Jesus dressed as a king in glorious garments with a golden crown, but nailed to the cross, not suffering, but alert, awake, and looking straight ahead with a commanding expression on his face because the real Lord of all the earth is the one who gave himself for us on the cross. Know what that says about the cross as the throne of the king and that this is the face of the authority of the kingdom, the willingness to suffer, the willingness to endure, the willingness to lift others up out of their woundedness. It was out of this then later on that attached to that face of Jesus as the king who rules from the cross is a sense of, and what did the king do for us? How much does the king care for us? And suddenly there begins to be the contemplation of his suffering. And we see then afterwards the images of the crucifix showing us the Lord in the act of how much he gives of himself for us. But why? Because this self-giving is the way of the king. While all of this is developing in the broader church, there is a consciousness of the fact that the Lord doesn't simply give us a list of principles to follow, but a way of living. Note that expression, the way of the cross. Way meaning way of life. Way meaning the route that we will take. Way meaning a pathway that we can walk along that is reliable and which would lead us to our destination. And so what happens is, especially as Christians moved and migrated to the Holy Land, reminiscences about the Lord in the locations associated with his life became very, very important. And even though the structure of the city of Jerusalem changed dozens and dozens of times over the years, 
there are associations of a living memory of things that happened on that day when the Lord died. And that's not surprising because people would tell the stories. And there would be a memory of him stumbling as he moved down the street. There would be a memory of certain individuals who came forward. Some of that's contained in scripture. The incident of Simon being made to help Jesus, for example. The experience of the fact that Mary, his mother, was there and moved along with all of this. And it wasn't so much that the early and original root was remembered and preserved because, as I said, streets and neighborhoods in Jerusalem were destroyed and rebuilt with amazing regularity. But what was preserved were the core movements that as he moved to Calvary, we knew where the movement started, we knew where the movement ended, and it went through the city in some way. And while he moved through the city and out of the city, certain things happened. So note what happens. People begin to say, I might not know the exact route, but I know the beginning where he's condemned, I know the end point where he's crucified. I can move through the city like he did. And it begins as an act of imaginative prayer. I'm moving along with the Lord on the way that he himself went. And at various parts, points along the way, one would stop and reflect upon what he or she knew or had heard about the way Jesus moved through the city that day. This is where the word station comes from. You ever wonder about that, why it's called the stations of the cross? Simple vocabulary, what happens at a station? The train stops, the bus stops, people get on and people get off. This is a prayer that implies movement of some kind. It is movement with the Lord through the events of his passion. It is movement with the Lord from the moment of his condemnation to his giving of his life on Calvary and being placed in the tomb. But it is a series of movements with him. But when one moves with the Lord from time to time, one stops. And at that point of stopping, there's a moment of reflection, a moment of prayer. At that point of stopping, others might join us. And after that stop, one continues. This is how the church has prayed from the beginning. In fact, the liturgies of Holy Week themselves are referred to as stational liturgies. It's not an expression we're familiar with here in North America because we don't tend to pray that way naturally. And when we're presented with it, we're puzzled by it. But for example, just a couple few weeks ago on February 2nd, the Feast of the Presentation in the Lord, which a day where mass begins differently than any other day with the blessing of candles. The preferred way of celebrating that mass, which is just difficult for us in North America in February, is to start at another church or chapel with the candles being lit and blessed 
and move in procession from the first place, the first station, to the place where Mass would be celebrated. We'll see something similar on Palm Sunday. Again, the, pre the preference is when it can be arranged, one starts in a prayer space, the palms are blessed, and the community moves in procession through the streets along a designated route to the place where the Mass will be celebrated. Note, stational. We move from one place to the other, and at each place there is prayer. We'll see it on Holy Thursday with the altar of repose. It'll be in the church, and yet there will be a movement through the church to a different location where the sacrament will be reserved. So this idea of moving and the movement being part of the prayer has long been with us. So what happened is, especially during the Crusades, as the Franciscans moved into the Holy Land and were accorded by Rome the status of the custodians of the sacred sites. They saw this custom of moving and visiting the places associated with the life of Jesus and with the death of Jesus. And so out of this same period in time, we get the twin customs of the nativity set and the stations of the cross, which come to us through St. Francis and his followers. And what did they see? They saw the power in what it would be like to organize groups of people, to move meditatively along with the Lord following the steps of his passion. And over time, a certain series of steps, a certain series of memories was recognized as being particularly effective. These would be what we call now the traditional 14 stations of the cross. But there, were, you know, but there weren't always 14. Some iterations might have had 20. Others might have had six. But moving through the route and punctuating the route with things that are worth remembering, these were found to be effective steps. And the Franciscan missionaries also realized not everybody can come to Jerusalem to do this. In fact, it's not even necessarily desirable. When they have the Blessed Sacrament, they have the presence of the Lord at home, but wouldn't it be wonderful if we would take this back to our churches in Europe? And so they go back to Europe. And in the Franciscan churches at first, outside of the churches, not inside the churches, they began to landscape areas where they could plant crosses. And they began just among themselves, moving from cross to cross, meditating on the things they experienced elsewhere. And suddenly out of that, they began animating among the people the twofold element of contemplating the Lord on his cross and all that he has suffered for us, but at the same time, moving with him along the route that he takes for that great act of love and self-giving. This is the, in a sense, origin of what we now know today as the praying of the Stations of the Cross. But note how it emphasizes the idea 
not just of contemplating, but of moving with the Lord. Pick up your cross and follow me. And the essence of following someone is moving with that one and letting the Lord lead. It's, it's a marvelous history um, and a marvelous origin. And so as this began to develop, uh, right away the peculiar importance of this devotion and its resonance with the time of Lent became very, very clear. Because during Lent, the church had already for hundreds of years been preparing to celebrate the death of the Lord on Good Friday, been preparing to celebrate his victory on Easter Sunday. And so now there's this tool that allows the faithful and the clergy together with some solemnity to move together according to the rhythm of the self-giving of Jesus. And so the normative way of 14 steps, 14 stations was established. And the custodians of this devotion for hundreds and hundreds of years were the Franciscans. So much so that up until the 1960s, if a parish had the Stations of the Cross erected in their parish, that way of the cross had to be consecrated, validly blessed by a Franciscan. And so a Franciscan would be brought in for that moment of consecrating the Stations of the Cross in the parish. That is no longer the case. But now having said that, let's back up because there are some things here that are really important. Many times when we think of our experience of the Stations of the Cross, we also think of pictures, don't we? The statues that we see, the images or the paintings that we see that are set up to help us contemplate. For example, we have the small stations on the walls of our church here. And you'll notice that each one of them has an image of Jesus depicting the visually the events that are being contemplated in that particular station. However, the most important thing about these stations in our church and about stations anywhere is those little crosses on top of them. The essence of the stations of the cross is not stopping before 14 particular images. It is stopping before 14 distinct crosses. One doesn't need the pictures. One needs the crosses. In fact, if all we had were the pictures, we wouldn't have a validly erected stations of the cross. Each station must be, if you're having an image, it must be connected to, it must be attached to a cross. And on the one hand, that might sound like legalistic hair-splitting, but it's the church insisting that it is the contemplation of the mystery of the cross that matters. And that the names of the steps of the contemplation matter less than the act of contemplating what Jesus has done for us. The images are optional. Even the titles are flexible. They're helpful. And so the 
traditional 14 steps of the Stations of the Cross are proposed by the church as particularly helpful ways of entering into the mystery of how Jesus gives himself for us, but not as the only ways. This is why a number of years ago, Pope St. John Paul II in Rome, when he led the Stations, developed a different series of 14 steps that he had no problem placing alongside the traditional series of steps. Never saying one is better than the other, but saying this is another way of engaging this mystery and this devotion. Because technically, if the question comes, and it does come up, Father, what's required to pray the stations of the cross? 14 stops, okay? And at each stop, some form of contemplation of the passion. Note what I didn't say. Memorizing the names of all 14, and at each stop, contemplating exactly that. Note how, note how, again, it's not to say that the particular images, the particular names, have no value. They have great value. But the greatest value is the repeated engagement step by step with the mystery of the cross. This can be helpful because sometimes we can't get out to pray the stations. Whether that's because physically I'm limited, whether it's because again here we're in the northeast, there could be eight inches of snow on the stations of the cross trail, and eight, six inches of snow on the road and the church is locked. But I have a crucifix at home, perhaps, that I could hold in my hand. And I might not be able to physically move, but my heart can move 14 times. And I might not have memorized the order or the names of all 14 stops. But I'm sure I could stop 14 times and pause a moment and think about something about the Lord's passion even if it's the same thing 14 times over, and that would be fine. Because the value is gazing upon what Jesus does for us so that our hearts can be softened and opened to receive the fullness of that mercy he wins for us on the cross. All of the Lenten devotions of the Passion, in a sense, function this way. Why the devotion to the seven last words? Because Jesus is saying something to us from his cross, and we want to listen and hear it. Why is there the devotion to the wounded face of Christ? Because I need to gaze upon that face so that I might come to appreciate the full truth of who he is. Why is there devotion to the sorrows of Mary, which we will reflect upon in a later retreat day here, because turning to the suffering of Our Lady opens me up more fully to appreciate the sufferings of her son. And what is the point of engaging the suffering of her son? Falling in love with him. That it's that directly simple. And so as the stations began to come indoors in particular, 
um, there were some beautiful things that ended up happening where the stations would be framed at their beginning and their end with other artistic elements. For example, you note in our church, our Stations of the Cross, in a sense, is introduced by the image of Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He is acclaimed as king, the palm branches are waved, and the very people who are laying their cloaks before him and celebrating him are those a few days later who will call for his crucifixion. But note how that works. The king is arriving. And so the rest of the way of the cross celebrates his enthronement on Calvary. The king mounts his throne from which his love will rule and order the world. And then note how it concludes with, a, with an image that quite literally shows us the victory of his resurrection. The Lord who has been crucified and placed in the tomb moves immediately to the halls of the dead. That's what we're seeing there. And what he's standing on are the broken doors of the kingdom of death. The king has knocked those doors down. He's bound the devil. He's bound death. He's broken all of the chains of guilt and sin. And he's snatching out of the grave Adam and Eve and all of those others to bring them home with him. He is the king who wins the victory. And so note, he's proclaimed as king there by those who don't understand what it means. As we go step by step through these movements, we see the face of true kingship on his cross, and we see the real outcome of what it is to say that the Lord is king who saves his people. Another way of giving exactly this same message and more common artistically is that the Stations of the Cross would often be framed at the end with an image, again, of Jesus risen from the dead and at the beginning of the Lord with his hands tied and the crown of thorns and the purple cloak on him. And it's a reference to what Pontius Pilate says to the crowd after Jesus is scourged and crowned with thorns. And he's brought out and he's placed before the people, and Pilate says, Eche hobo, behold the man, look at him. And so it was very common when one would see Stations of the Cross set up in the church to see that image at the beginning, often with the Latin Eche homo written somewhere on it or around it. And the insistence is, behold the man, in other words, take a good look at him and keep looking all the way through. Keep your eye on him. Behold the man. And as one beholds the Lord moving from station to station, step to step, one gets to him in the tomb and one keeps looking and one sees the victorious and risen Lord. And so note, the one we behold at the beginning is revealed to be the one who rises in triumph. Behold the man. That having been said, 
In our modern period, it has become customary in many places to pray 15 Stations of the Cross, with the 15th being the resurrection. Um, and that is not a bad custom at all, um, but it is certainly a modern addition. But it flows from the fact that for centuries, there would be an image of the risen Lord at the end, basically indicating this is the outcome. This is the one who has suffered all of these things. That having been said, again, let's linger with that because this is an important element of the Stations of the Cross. What is the first step on the way of the cross? And normally somebody's going to raise their hand and say, Jesus is condemned to death. No. The first step on the Stations of the Cross is Jesus has risen from the dead. That's where we start. None of us praise the Stations of the Cross without knowing that Jesus has risen from the dead. Let's be honest, that's the truth. The first step is the one we don't see. And it's only because Jesus rose from the dead that we pray the Stations of the Cross. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, or if we don't believe that, it's a really foolish exercise. It's a walk that begins with condemnation and injustice. It is 14 consecutive steps of pain, hardship, and futility that ends in the darkness of the grave and nothing changes. That's not what we believe. And it's important sometimes, because every now and then you'll hear somebody say, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by the stations or the Passion of the Lord, but it's all so depressing. Well, if that's all I see, if that is all I see, of course it is. Note the importance of faith in the resurrection. It's getting ready to Easter, which is why we're doing all of this. That is the starting point. He has been raised, the one who has been crucified. That's why we look at this one and his crucifixion. Otherwise, otherwise we're walking a way that ends with evil overcoming good. We're walking a way that says being good doesn't change anything. Evil wins in the end. And so note, the unseen first step of the way of the cross is that we already know the end. We already know the outcome. But as we walk the way with that knowledge, our knowledge of what it means to say that Jesus rose from the dead becomes deeper, becomes more solid. We come to know more fully what it is that he's done for us and what he has overcome for us. And so each step, however much sorrow is found in those steps, however painful the three falls would be, however painful the experience of the nails piercing his hands and his feet would be, each of those steps is victorious. But it's that victory of a love that is stronger than death. In fact, that is one of the great scripture verses 
that the church has long used, especially the mystics of the church, in contemplating the passion. And it's from the Song of Songs. Love is sterner or mightier than death. And that is the overarching tenor of the devotion of the stations. We see, on the one hand, how unrelentingly wicked and selfish and violent and unthinkingly so that the world can be. And yet moving through it all is a love that will not be destroyed or overcome by any of those things. And then the, you know, then the desire of the church is that we who have to live in this world capable of such unthinking violence likewise can move in the strength and the goodness and the victory of that one who has not been overcome. And we can learn to live in such a way where it doesn't overmaster us as well. Note how powerful that is. Note how powerful that is. And so traditionally as Christians have prayed the Stations of the Cross, one of the beautiful things about it is there are so many characters in the Stations of the Cross. There are so many characters in the Passion. You notice on Good Friday when we read the Gospel accounts of the Passion or Palm Sunday when we read the Gospel accounts of the Passion, it's never just Jesus. There's all these other people. There's Pontius Pilate. There's the soldiers. There's the women. There's Simon. There's the disciples. The ones who try to follow, the ones who run away, Judas who betrays. They're the women who are faithful. Notice all the different characters. And one of the real powers of the Stations of the Cross is it presents us with those characters. It presents us with Pontius Pilate washing his hands. And it invites us to ask the question of, when have I been victimized by that? But also, when have I just absolved myself? of wrong that I knew I was committing and yet made excuses for. We see the jailers who push Jesus along, and yet we have to ask ourselves, how often have I been that guy? And how often have I been the one who's been pushed and beaten down? We see the Lord fall and we're invited to see our own failings and ask him to help us rise with him as we move along. We see Mary meeting him, and we realize that if we continue to move with Jesus, we'll meet her on the way too. But note how marvelous it really is that the more we engage the devotion of the stations, the more the stations themselves almost hold up a mirror to us, and we can see ourselves. We can see ourselves where we go off course. We can see ourselves where we more or less get it right, we can see ourselves where we simply just need help. And beautifully then, the church does this together. And so note, oftentimes when we pray the stations in our parish churches, we're pretty much just in our benches, aren't we? And everybody stands, and you know, if you have a big congregation, you have 100 people, not everybody can walk down those narrow aisles and stop in front of the stations. There's not enough space. But note what ordinarily happens. The priest and a couple servers with a cross 
stop in front of each station, they move on behalf of everybody. And what do we do? We move a little bit. We stand, we kneel, we genuflect. We don't change our location, but we do change our posture. And that embodied character of prayer is another element of the stations. It's one of the reasons I strongly recommend that if I do find myself for whatever reason, whether it's illness or the inability to get outside or terrible weather, um, if I'm going to try and pray the stations at home, it really is a good idea. Physically, have a cross in your hand. Feel its weight. Feel its weight. Hold on to it. Maybe even kiss it after each station. Because, no, the physicality does something. You know, we, the Stations of the Cross is one of those prayers that isn't just the kind of prayer where I sit and contemplate, and that is a wonderful prayer to say. But there's a physicality about the Stations, a putting my hand to something, a making my body move to remind me of the way my heart and my spirit need to move as well need to move not according to my pace so much as along with the pace that Jesus sets. And it's a movement not simply to Calvary, but a movement that moves from Calvary to a glorious victory. Um, and that's the, that's the beautiful element here. If anybody would be my disciple, let him deny himself, let him pick up his cross, and let him follow me. So know what the Lord says, if you want to be with me, deny yourself and then don't come empty-handed. Pick up the cross and move, but move with me. Because if we contemplate these things away from Jesus, all we contemplate is pain and failure. But we can let him lead us through these things to that glorious outcome which is so much better. And this is why, again, the church has long said and St. Louis de Montfort summarizes it beautifully. He says, never the cross without Jesus. Don't pick up your cross and not go with Jesus because you're going to be stuck with a world of hurt. Never the cross without Jesus. But likewise, never Jesus without the cross. Never Jesus without the cross. Victorious on Easter Sunday, he still bears the, bears the marks of the nails. This is the way he wins the victory. This is the sign of his love. This is where we start to unite ourselves with him and where he unites himself with us. Never the Lord without the cross, but never the cross. Never the woundedness of the world without Jesus. Because that's a woundedness that can't heal itself. But with Jesus, all things can be made new. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.